Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Speaking of uh, churches filled with ordinary people and full of lots of ordinary problems, uh, we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Galatians, uh, which is a book uh, to a group of normal Christians, uh, just like this one. Uh, It was written uh, by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches that he had founded uh, through his own church planting ministry about three years before he wrote this letter. And what has happened in Galatia, if you've been sticking around with us uh, over these weeks, this will be familiar territory for you, but if you're new with us, uh, what's gone on in Galatia is that they had forgotten kind of the charter foundational message of Christianity. Paul uh, had started that church on the foundation of the gospel, the idea that you are forgiven through nothing other than the grace of God, through the cross of Christ by faith that then and instantly you are loved and accepted and counted righteous by God because of Jesus. And that out of the overflow of that life-changing encounter with Christ, your life is changed. Grace, acceptance before God, and then a changed life. Well, some other teachers came uh, into these churches and said, no, 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 Paul was close but not quite right. Because what, what, what God really asks... Yes, you need to believe in Jesus by faith and receive grace, but then your life has to change, particularly around the keeping of the law. You need to be circumcised, you need to start observing the Jewish law and food customs, and then and only then God will call you righteous. Then and only then God will accept you. And so it's a small thing, it seems, right? You have the same three elements, but in reversing those two, Does your life change first and you obey God, then he accepts you as righteous? Or does God already forgive you and accept you and call you righteous? And out of the overflow of that, your life changes. Paul says, you know what, if you get those two things wrong, you've gotten everything wrong. And a religion, a faith that was meant to be one of freedom and joy becomes a reversion back to a kind of slavery, a kind of religious bondage. And that's what he is going to be warning uh, the Galatian Christians against today, is going back uh, into that old slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That is one of uh, my favorite little uh, summaries of the gospel that Paul gives in his epistles. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom. You know, there's perhaps uh, no more deeply held value in American society than the value of freedom. Uh, We talk about freedom all the time. We love our freedoms. We cherish our freedoms. We're grateful for uh, the way that our nation is marked by freedom. Freedom matters uh, in our culture. And yet, if you come to the Bible uh, with your American presuppositions about what kind of freedom Paul is talking about here, about what real freedom really is, 
you're almost certainly to get it wrong. Uh, You're almost certain uh, to miss the radical nature of freedom that Paul is talking about here. Freedom uh, in uh, our culture, in Western culture, usually means the freedom of the individual from any outside obligations or requirements. It's the idea that nobody outside of me has the right to tell me how to live my life, that my life shouldn't be submitted uh, to any kind of outside claims of authority. This is uh, at the level of a national core value, such that uh, it comes through in our law, in our politics, uh, in the songs that we sing, the things that we celebrate. Listen to this. Uh, This summarizes it well. This is from Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy in his majority opinion in the court case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. Listen to these words. At the heart of liberty or freedom is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Right At the core of freedom is the right to make up for yourself the meaning of life, the morality of life, the values that, that you live your life by, that that is what freedom means. To put it a little closer to home, I remember the day, it was one day over the summer, when Hart, my now seven-year-old, he was six at the time, uh, came into the house singing to himself. And the words that he was, he was singing, these words, can't nobody tell me nothing, and like walked strutting through, the, strutting through our house. I was like, excuse me? Because I, I have a different view of how our house would work. Um, and I said, buddy, what, what, did you, what are you singing? And he goes, dad, it's Lil, Lil Nas X uh, from Old Town Road. And I said, we, we might need to control what we're listening to. Can't nobody tell me nothing uh, is boiled down what Justice Kennedy was saying, right? That nobody has a right to determine for me what I do with my life. And so as, uh, as Western people, we long for that kind of freedom. And it doesn't ultimately matter if it's my son singing, can't nobody tell me nothing, Um, If it was you in the 1980s throwing down, you know, putting the cassette tape of Born to Run and your Firebird and taking off, Um, if you were playing the Dixie Chicks, uh, I need wide open spaces, right? We long for freedom, unrestrained pursuit of our own deepest desires. Is that what Paul means when he talks about freedom? Is that what Jesus had in mind? when he set us free for the sake of freedom? Well, the Christian tradition tells us the painful truth, that that kind of freedom leads us ultimately to a new kind of slavery, right? That when we believe that we're set free to do anything we want, to satisfy our appetites, to chase our dreams, that we end up back in a kind of slavery, Only it's a slavery of our own making. It's a slavery to ourselves and our own desires and our own ways of thinking and living. One of the great voices uh, of this uh, truth in the Christian church uh, is Augustine, the 4th century African saint. Augustine was born in a small town uh, in what currently is Algeria. He was born in a small town, and he was always a little bit too big for his town. He was a brilliant mind. 
uh, very sharp. He was an ambitious heart. He wanted, he dreamed of being in the royal courts. He dreamed of being friends with the emperor. He dreamed of being a philosopher. And he was a man of rampant appetites, particularly for romance. And so, as a young man, like so many do, he set off from his small town in Algeria to go to the metropolis of his area, to go to Carthage, cosmopolitan city on the African coast. He wrote in his autobiography, The Confessions, he says, To Carthage then I came where a cauldron of unholy loves sang all about my ears. He gets to Carthage. He's later going to go to Rome uh, and then finally to Milan in chase of love and the fulfillment of his ambitions. But what he finds is this pursuit of his dreams, this pursuit of his appetites, this pursuit of romance leads him ultimately into a kind of prison. Listen to the way he writes after getting what he thought he needed. He says, I sighed after such freedom, but was bound not by an iron of anyone else, but by the iron of my own choice, a harsh bondage held me under constraint. Augustine goes on to narrate what we in uh, contemporary uh, understanding would call essentially a sex addiction. Uh, that he was, uh, in one point he says, he was in love with love. At another point, uh, when he's close to conversion and he's beginning to experience the love of God, he said, God, make me chaste, but not yet. Uh, he wanted to continue to pursue that way of life that he thought was going to lead to freedom. But then he says he realizes that he was bound by bonds of his own making, that he'd forged his own prison. Our freedom ultimately makes us prisoners. It makes us addicts. This is why uh, originally the big book of AA, the original title of that book was The Way Out. Leslie Jameson, an author who writes of her own experience of addiction, writes this. She says, it's not simply the way out of addiction, but out of the claustrophobic crawl space of the self. And so if we want to understand freedom, if we want to taste that kind of freedom, we need to understand the deeper way that Jesus offers us freedom. This is what Jesus invites us to when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right, that freedom, that life isn't found in pursuing your own desires to however, however deeply you can, but it's found in laying down your desires, laying down your ambitions, laying down your life to find life in him. And so as Paul talks about the freedom of Christ, we ought to look at the freedom, uh, what Christ frees us from and what Christ frees us for. What he frees us from and what he frees us for because true freedom has to be more than just freedom from. It has to be more than just freedom from constraints, but freedom to pursue the good and beautiful and true. And so what does Jesus free us from? Historically, theologically, Christians have talked uh, about the redemption that Jesus offers, what he frees us from in three main headings. That he frees us from sin, that he frees us from the devil, and that he frees us from death, right? That every human being that's been born into this world has been born under this basic slavery. Everyone wrestles and struggles with sin. Everyone wrestles and knows what it is to feel like your life is opposed by a kind of evil in the world. 
And everyone knows what it means to live a life that you know you're enslaved to death, where even over your good days is the shadow of death. And throughout Jesus' life, we see him taking on and doing battle to set people free from these three enslaving enemies. Just to remember three stories, you might remember the story told in John chapter 8, where the religious leaders bring Jesus a woman who's been caught red-handed in the throes of adultery. They bring her out of this adulterous relationship, no sign of the man that she was with, conveniently enough. They put her in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, the law tells us that we should stone women like this one. What do you say? And he says, I say, let the one of you who's without sin throw the first stone. John tells us that one by one, starting with the oldest, they left her alone as they realized their own guilt. And then Jesus lifts her up, finally speaking to her and says, where are those that would condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. He speaks to her as though his gracious act with her has set her free from a cycle of sin and shame and bondage so that he can, with a word, say, now go and leave this sin. Don't go and better luck with the adultery. Now go. You've been forgiven and set free. Now don't sin anymore. Friends, Christ sets us free. You're free from sin. It doesn't mean your life will ever be without it. But it means that you're no longer a slave to it. You don't have to live in that cycle of bondage and shame and repeat. That you can be free from sin. He frees us from evil. You might remember that story in Luke 4, where, or in Mark 4, where Jesus uh, sets off on a trip and he gets off on a boat in Gentile territory. And there, uh, this group of people, he begins healing and setting people free and doing the stuff that Jesus does. And then they bring a man to him who they viewed as beyond uh, their ability to help. He was beyond their ability to help medically or psychologically or spiritually. He was a man who was so out of control that we get the details that he used to live out with the graves, that he used to live out with the dead. Uh, we're told that sometimes he was so dangerous to himself and others that they chained him up. And you may remember that Jesus set him free from what we're told is a legion of demons. He says, leave this man alone. And he throws the demons into a herd of pigs. And the pigs then take a nosedive off a cliff, uh, which the local pig farming uh, economy did not care for. So they told Jesus to get out. He said, if you're in the business of, of filling our pigs with demons and getting them to kill themselves, get out of here. But what Jesus is doing there is saying, you no longer have to live your life enslaved to forces beyond your control. You no longer have to live your life enslaved by the forces of evil and Satan and the demons. That there is a freedom that you could never get for yourself that he is enacting and announcing. Or the greatest enemy of all, death itself. Think of John 11, where Jesus standing outside of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, while his dear friends, the sisters Mary and Martha, weep, and Jesus just speaks into the graves, says, Lazarus, come out. And this man, wrapped in his grave clothes, comes stumbling out of the tomb, squinting against the light to see what's going on. And Jesus says, take, his, take the grave clothes off of him. 
And as they stripped them away, they weren't just stripping off the cloths, but over the cha- they were stripping off the chains. They keep all of creation subject to death. Jesus saying, friends, you don't have to live enslaved to death, in fear of death anymore. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Of course, Jesus does his final freeing work over sin and the devil and death itself in his cross and resurrection, right? Where he finally takes the worst the devil can throw and the full weight of human sin on himself on the cross. And then he triumphs over it on the third day, coming out of the tomb, finally defeating death forever for everyone. He has dealt these final blows to our deepest enemies. And that's why Paul can say it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in that freedom. And what Paul says next is key. Because he says, don't let yourself uh, again be submitted to a yoke of slavery. And then he starts urging them against these people who are telling them that they have to keep the law in order to be real Christians, that they have to be circumcised, that they have to keep kosher. And Paul, uh, as you may have noticed, gets pretty animated about this topic uh, in this. Right, he goes so far. I mean, this is, this is one of the darkest chapters in Paul in some ways when he says, uh, those of you who are so big on circumcision, while you're down there circumcising, I wish you would just go the whole way and cut the whole thing off. That's what he says when he says, I wish you would go ahead and emasculate yourselves. It's saying, look, if you're so big on cutting stuff off, do it all. He is worked up over this issue of circumcision. Why? He's going to go on to say, and we're going to talk about this, that actually neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters all that much. You go, Paul, if it doesn't matter all that much, maybe some temperance in your language would be appreciated. (laughs) But no, what he's saying is, if you revert back to the keeping of the law, you are reverting back to slavery, to sin, the devil, and even death itself. Now, this isn't Paul. Christians have often gotten misunderstood here. Like, this is... Paul's not slamming the law as though it is somehow bad, right? As if God's moral requirements are somehow less than perfect and life-giving and true. What he's saying is when you go back to the law and start relying on it for your righteousness before God, you're going back into the way that Satan has always twisted God's law, which he tells us that Satan twists the law by taking sin in the human heart, our inability to keep that law, And then ramping up guilt and accusation and shame on top of that, leading ultimately to death, right? That all who cannot keep the law are condemned to death. And so what he's saying is when you revert back to the law, you're playing right back into that old manipulation, that old slavery, believing that if you keep the law, then God will love you. If you keep the law, then you'll be righteous. And you're left right back with your own sin. You're left right back under the devil's manipulation, you're left right back, staring at death on your own. And so, friends, we should hear what Paul's saying, that we not go back to relying on your performance for God to be the ground of your acceptance by God, right? And we all do this in a thousand ways, right? There's probably few of you that are sitting in in your pew or chair today, uh, thinking, I wonder if I should be circumcised so that God will love me, right? That's probably, that probably didn't enter into your mind. If it did, let's talk. Um, 
But how often do you equate your standing before God with your, your performance for God? Right? That God loves me more when I read my Bible and when I pray and when I avoid my addictions and when I don't sin and when I give to the church and when I go to church and when I... We, we, the list goes on and on. And you have to... We all feel a little bit better before God on our good days than on our bad days. Right? I, I always feel a little more entitled to get my way with God when I haven't, you know, done a habitual sin in a little while, when I got up that morning to say my prayers, when I did these things, I feel like, yeah, God probably likes me just a little bit more. I feel a little bit better about myself than I do about those other people who slept in this morning instead of reading their Bible or who, who watched the Jags game instead of coming to church today or, uh, you know, whatever else that we do to make ourselves feel better about ourselves spiritually before God. And Paul's saying, no, 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 when you do that, when you base your acceptance before God on your performance for God, you're falling right back into the same slavery that's held human beings in bondage for millennia, believing that you earn your way to God's heart, believing that you earn your way to heaven and fellowship with him. And Paul says, if you fall back into that, then you've made yourself a slave again. But he goes on. Not just what Jesus freed us from, but what Jesus freed us for. And it's here uh, where his notion of freedom strikes most at the heart of the way that Americans and, and Western people in general often think about freedom. Because for Paul, freedom involves obedience. Freedom involves the freedom to submit and live our lives under the rule of God. It means the freedom to pursue a life that when stuck in sin, when stuck inside yourself, you could never pursue. A life marked by love and joy and generosity and service. right? A life marked, as he's going to say here, most supremely by love. That in your sin, in your captivity, you were not able to live the life that the scriptures tell us is a good life because you were in bondage. But freedom involves obedience. Look at what he says in verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Right? That, that freedom involves a kind of obedience. It involves a submission of our life to what Paul calls here the truth. A submission of our life to the rule of God. Look at what he says in verse 1. We'll go back to that, that verse. When he says, it's for, free, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What Paul's doing here is he's using a, a linguistic metaphor that would have been understood by his hearers when he talks about submitting to a yoke. This was a common way in the first century and, and before that the Israelites would talk about submitting yourself under the instruction of a rabbi to the keeping of God's law. So the metaphor is just like, just like an animal has to learn submission right? Like an ox has to be broken and learn how to submit to the yoke that's going to be laid over it so that it can drive a wagon or a plow, right? Just as an animal has to learn to submit to that yoke, that to be a disciple of a rabbi, to be under the instruction of Torah, of the law, means taking that yoke on top of yourself, bearing that burden, and learning to live in that way. That metaphor comes up here, and it comes up elsewhere uh, in the New Testament, right? You might remember this place where Paul, in the book of Acts, says to some religious leaders of his time, 
Why are you asking the Gentiles to bear a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Right? When you start asking them, these new converts, to keep the law and to be circumcised and to do all that the law requires, you're laying on their backs this yoke of the law that you know that you haven't been able to carry, you know your fathers and your grandfathers and your grandmothers haven't been able to carry. What are you doing? But we also hear it, don't we, on the lips of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus' invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The yoke of Jesus, the yoke of being a disciple of Jesus. Disciple just means apprentice. It's somebody who's learning from Jesus how to live their life. Somebody who's learning from Jesus what real life is. Jesus says, friends, it's not a heavy yoke. It's not a burden that you can't carry. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I offer you rest. Friends, all of us live our lives under some kind of yoke. Right? You're either bearing on your own neck the yoke of the law, trying to earn your way to God through your own goodness and morality and religion, or you bear on yourself the yoke of, of the values of our world, of our culture, trying to learn from the world around you how to live in its rat race for success, its constant pursuit of more. That too is a yoke that will crush. And Jesus says, come take my yoke on you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's an invitation to rest. It's an invitation to love. It's an invitation to real life. Jesus, uh, Paul goes on in this passage to say ultimately the yoke of Jesus, the way of life of Jesus is summed up in one word. Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right, he says uh, in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Right? If you're like any other human being that's ever heard the gospel message, your first response, and the response that Paul constantly dealt with, was, you're telling me I'm forgiven? You're telling me that God already accepts me, he already loves me, he already looks at me as perfectly righteous? Well, then I can do whatever I want. Right? I, I think everyone who's ever heard the message of grace has thought that, right? Because, well, we're sinful. Like, we, we, we want permission. Over and over, Paul tells people, the freedom that God's given you is not freedom to satisfy yourself. It's not freedom to satisfy your own appetites. It's freedom for love. It's freedom to love God and to love your neighbors from a whole and healed heart. He tells us, for in Christ Jesus, verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Get that. After all this ink spilled about circumcision, he says it doesn't matter if you get circumcised. He says it doesn't matter if you, if you do get circumcised. God's not going to look on that and think anything more of you than he does over your Gentile brother that hasn't been. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you don't get circumcised. God's not going to look at that and say, oh, you didn't keep the law, you're not coming in. The only thing that counts 
to God is faith expressing itself through love. And I think this is one of the very best descriptions of the way the Christian life works. That it's faith, it's taking hold of the grace of God by faith. John Calvin says that we don't that our response to grace is the same as is the rain, is the grass's response to rain. Right? The grass doesn't do anything to earn the rain, the grass doesn't do anything to make it rain. All the great the grass does is sit there and open itself up to receive it. That faith in the heart takes hold of grace, and a heart transformed by grace begins to express itself in love to God and to, to one another, to our neighbors. That that's the measure. That's how you can look at someone's life. If you want to look at your own life and go, how much have I, how much is the grace of God taken hold of my heart? Do I see myself increasingly loving God and the people in my life as I'm experiencing his love? Or am I starting to love a little more deeply, a little more sacrificially, a little more humbly because of the way that Jesus is loving me in the gospel? Jesus uh, tells this remarkable story in Luke chapter 7 about how we grow in love. Right? I think this is one, as a pastor, uh, growing in love is one of the hardest things uh, to wrap our minds around. Right? In some ways, it's my job to help a group of people become more loving. I can't help myself become more loving. Right? I'm, I'm constantly amazed by my own selfishness. Right? So how do, you, how do you help people love more? Right? I think that's one of the reasons why we fall back on the law, why we fall back on behavior. It's because I can make you feel bad Right? I, can, I can make you feel guilty about the stuff you're not doing in your life. Like, I feel guilty about the stuff I'm doing and not doing in my life. Right? Guilt is fairly easy, but a heart transformed by love is hard. We can't control it. We can't make it happen. We can't manipulate it. So how does a heart begin to love and to grow in love? Well, in Luke 7, Jesus tells this story. He's in a Pharisee's house. That's one of the religious leaders of his day. And this woman uh, comes in. The only thing we're told of her is that she was a sinner which likely means that she was a prostitute. And she comes in, likely the only woman in this room where Jesus is debating religious leaders, and bawling her eyes out, she falls at Jesus' feet. She takes her perfume, the most valuable possession she had, she pours it on Jesus' feet, she weeps over his feet, and then she lets her hair down and dries his feet with her hair. It's an act of extravagant love, of amazing love. And the religious leaders sit back and judge the heck out of her for it. Who, is, who does she think she is? How can she come? Can't she tell that the men are talking about something serious here? Can't she tell that this is a gathering for good people to talk about good things? And here she is. What are people going to think of me that she's in my house? And then Luke says, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, answered them. Right? They didn't say anything. He, said he, knew, he saw what they were thinking and answered them. And he told them this story. He said, suppose there were two men who owed a debt to the same bank, the same moneylender. One of them owed uh, the moneylender about $5,000, a lot of money, enough that he would have to go into a kind of a debtor's prison, a kind of a slavery until he paid it off. Another one owed this same man about $200,000. And one day the bank forgave both debts. Who do you think would love the banker more? 
And even these hard-hearted religious leaders had to say, well, the one who had been forgiven more would likely love more. And Jesus says that's what's going on with this woman. She knows herself to have been forgiven much, so she loves much. Now, the, you know, for the hard-hearted religious leader, the answer isn't, see, it's okay that you only love a little bit because you're pretty good and you don't need that much forgiveness. No, it's a true, a true apprehension of your heart makes you realize how deep your debt, how deep your slavery, and how deep the forgiveness that you need is. And so, friends, if you want to know how to grow in love, how to grow more loving, Jesus seems to think, that the way that you grow in love is to grow more and more in your awareness of how much he's loved you. As you realize more and more the debt that you owe, the depth of your sin, you see again in fresh ways the breadth of his mercy, the extravagance of his forgiveness, the wideness of his embrace. And when you realize you've been forgiven much, the engine of your heart begins to love much. You'll find yourself a little less condemnatory of your friends, your neighbors, your children, your spouse. You'll find your, your heart transformed by love, beginning to love others much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess that the smallness of my love uh, so often does betray the smallness of my faith, the smallness of my understanding of my need and my sin and your grace and your goodness. Lord, I pray that your grace would become more radiantly beautiful to us, uh, that we would see more and more the depth of our need and more, to more, more and more uh, the breadth of your love and how much uh, you gave of yourself for us. Lord, I do pray uh, that we would take on ourselves the glad and easy yoke of Jesus, that as we, uh, Lord, apprentice ourselves to you, as we seek to live our lives from you, uh, that you would help us to find rest and joy and gladness and love. Lord, we long uh, to be transformed by your grace, to be ourselves a more loving people. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, uh, you would have your way in us, that you would work your grace, the grace of your gospel, more and more into our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.